and welcome to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast with your hosts, Dr. James and Dr. Dante. Back with another interview. We are excited today. We are excited to bring one of our good friends and a innovator in the healthcare field, especially in primary care, Dr. Didi Ebert. Dr. Didi, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you here. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Well, and we are excited to talk to you today because, you know, everyone knows our show is the Osteopathic Podcast, and we talk about all sorts of osteopathic medicine. But one thing we haven't done a lot of is talk about something you do on a daily basis, and that is an osteopathic approach to healthcare. And as a way of introducing you, I love your educational background. If you don't mind me talking a little bit about you and talking you up, um, Dr. Didi, she was as non-traditional as non-traditional can get from a medical school standpoint. She took six years to go to medical school. And those six years included doing time in a master's of public health, which she actually started that first then medical school, and then took a little bit of a, a sabbatical during medical school and started a master's degree in science in clinical research and education with an en- emphasis on education. And that took her six years to get three degrees. That's that's just amazing. And uh, Dr. Didi, Dr. Didi, if you could tell us a little bit of why why six years to go to medical school for all of this extra education. Well, I think, I think multiple reasons. So, so one, I I knew I wanted to be a physician from a young age. Um, And then in researching medical schools, I liked the osteopathic philosophy. And in reading about it more, to me, I saw the osteopathic philosophy in public health really being kind of like, I don't know, like including primary care with public health was almost an extension of the osteopathic philosophy. Like a person was also like their health had to do with the family that they were in and the community that they were in and like the social environmental factors. Um, And I wanted to have an impact on all of those levels if I could or understand how one could have an impact. Um, It's actually, and that's a recurring theme in our show, actually Um, the word that, uh, Dr. A.T. still used in his own writing was something called biogen, B-I-O-G-E-N. It was the idea that when looking for the problem, uh, pathology wasn't as clean of a word at the time, but when looking for the problem, sometimes the problem is at the level of the patient, as in maybe it was his or her anatomy, his or her um, lymphatics or with this and the other thing. Sometimes it was not quite there. Maybe it's in his biochemistry, as in maybe the tissue is just poor. Or in the other direction, maybe the reason that guy's movement is so poor is the situation that he or she is in, uh, which opened up this whole uh, continuum where maybe the job as an osteopath isn't to focus on the patient per se, but the medical scenario zooming in and out as needed. Uh, public health was a logical extension of his later writings before he uh, before he you know, kicked the bucket. One of his last things, um, one of his last projects was actually a, a hospital for mental health with the idea that that would address the mental health concerns of the region from a socioeconomic standpoint, basically just housing these guys. But uh, unfortunately, he passed in the middle of that uh, project. 
Well, and what's interesting about that idea, as medical science became, quote unquote, modern, it became more reduction or reductionistic in nature. And it seems like health systems lost their connection with public health, despite the fact that much of our greatest successes in the healthcare industry came because of public health initiatives. And I'm talking about things like hygiene, improved maternal, fetal maternal care that led to dropping rates of fetal mortality and maternal mortality and vaccinations and the like that seemed to really be public health's big in, uh, contribution to health, but the, the systems seem to be disconnected from each other. And what Dr. Didi does is is reconnects those systems and does it in a very meaningful way in a clinic setting and in an academic setting. So Dr. Didi, why, why do you go about medicine the way you do? I think for me, the I, I also my background is from a family of teachers, and I, I believe <laughs> that that imparting what we have learned collectively to the next generation of physicians is important for um, innovating or changing healthcare in a way that we need to go. So that that's part of it, um, and I do believe that that learners can contribute to the quadruple aim. Uh, and so that's kind of, that's what I'm passionate about. I believe that the learners can help us improve the system. So that that's kind of why I approach things the way that I do in our clinic and including learners the way that we do. Okay. So quadruple aim. Before I met you, I have, I had never heard of that term. And I'm thinking Dr. Dante with his uh, firearm aiming at four different targets in sequence. Why got firing off. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> So, but that, I don't think that's what we're talking about uh, at all. So, where does this quadruple aim come from? Number one, and, and then we'll talk about it after we talk about where it came from. Uh, so, it came from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and they originally established what's called the triple aim. Um, and so, we can go into more detail on that. But then, the fourth aim uh, is just wellness of the health healthcare professionals. Well, I mean, um, let, let's not take that for granted. A lot of our viewers are one, they're me but a lot of med students we found out. Uh, and on top of that, it's a fair amount of our patients. So let, let's actually back it up a tick. The triple aim itself, for those who aren't familiar with this language, that might actually be a new term. So why don't we set that stage a little bit? Yeah, let's let's go through each each arm of of the uh, the goal here. All right. So obviously, three parts. Um, first part is um, patient experience. Um, the second part is population health outcomes. And the third part is, and I'm going to, it's per capita cost. Per capita cost is the third part. So cost right. effectiveness so, almost. Yeah, cost effectiveness of the healthcare. Like how much, how much dollars does it take to provide care per person okay. that's cared for. I like that. And then the and fourth. That's, yeah, go ahead with the, the fourth real quick, and then we'll get into it. 
Yeah, and the fourth is that many institutions add in different variations has to do with the wellness of the of the healthcare force. So how do we prevent burnout and the people who are delivering or providing the care? Very, very important. And, uh, you know, I, I, I look at these four aims, especially wellness. And to be honest with you, I see a direct influence on patient experience with wellness because we, we talk about satisfaction and we normally, uh, there, there are some negative terms when we talk about patient satisfaction, at least on the physician side, things like, uh-oh, Prescani scores and um, uh, internet reviews from patients. But that really doesn't completely express what satisfaction is. What, what do we mean by improving the patient experience, focusing on satisfaction and safety and quality? So... The way that the IHI or the Institute for Healthcare Improvement describes it, that experience is better measured by just global satisfaction. So like in our in our network, we talk about, would you recommend this provider just overall globally? Would you recommend this, this experience to another patient? Um, that's the easier thing to measure. I think the harder thing to measure is the quality portion. So um, safety, equity, um, timeliness of care. Um, so things that the patient might not even be aware of, it might not be on their radar, um, how, how good their experience is from that perspective. So it's kind of up to us to, me- to measure that and, and make sure that we're doing a good job. So how is, how is that measured? Uh, I'd imagine there's all sorts of different ways of doing that, but, uh, more gener- generically, how do we how do we qualitatively and quantitatively measure these kinds of outcomes? Well, IHI has an entire um, <laughs> position paper on that. So, and it's very variable on the on the individual institution. So, um, just for safety, for instance, we might have uh, reporting mechanisms to to alert when there's been uh, what we call a miss or near miss situation in medicine. So maybe there wasn't a bad outcome, but um, through different layers of team members, uh, a nearly bad outcome was caught and and we were able to avert a a bad outcome. So uh, that might be one measure, for example, for safety. Is, is well, are we able to reduce the number of actual bad outcomes, and are we able to increase the number of uh, potentially bad outcomes that are caught at a level before it affects the patient? Well, and a lot of these outcomes, uh, bad outcomes, quite often are based on poorly designed systems versus poorly performing uh, clinicians, right? So, correct. If, correct. If, if we can design a better system, we can reduce outcomes that are poor. For example, um, medications uh, that are either misprescribed or prescribed to the wrong person, if the EMR is designed effectively, quote-unquote effectively, that we can reduce those poor outcomes, right? Correct, yeah. And a lot of the safety stuff does end up being team-based or system level. Um Although you you can look at the the care of the individual provider. Now, fortunately, at an academic setting like ours, 
we have some additional folks that uh, can help us. And in our case, we have students that seem to be really working hand in hand with us. How has having students been uh, uh, helpful with doing what you do? I think at at a university um, clinic, often we're serving um, an underserved or underinsured population. And I think that's uh, fairly normal across the board for university-based settings. So uh, these are clinics that that might be under-resourced compared to to a community clinic. So in that setting, we want to make sure that everyone's at the top of their training. So that uh, meaning we want every person to be able to use their skill sets to help the patients. Um, So kind of all hands on deck kind of concept. And historically the most underutilized uh, member of the healthcare team is, is the learner or the medical student. Um, They're really smart people have a lot of skills, uh, have, have attained some competencies and um, we, we want to include them in our team to be able to help, help improve outcomes for our patients. Well, it's funny you mentioned it that way, actually. Um, I was meeting with some of our, so we work in the same clinic, um, if that was made clear. Uh, so we work, I was working with some of the med students now becoming second years on Friday. And I was having this conversation with them that uh, in any other world, these are high functioning adults, professionals with responsibilities, but in this strange, so med school is a very strange entity. Uh, you graduate from high school, you graduate college, do some stuff in between possibly, and you end up in med school. And the vibe is very, very close to high school, actually, as far as the four-year progression, freshman, sophomore, that whole thing. Um, and there's this tendency to infantilize the med students, not because they're childish, but because, hey, guess what? They're back to being first, second, third, fourth year. So that has an echo in American setting. But at the same time, they're so green in this environment that, yeah, they kind of know nothing in this environment. So they're, sudden, they're considered undergraduates, technically, at least I was in my school for exactly. that very reason. But, you know, these are kids who probably, kids, see that whole thing, who are one, probably <laughs> in their 30s, and two, probably have done some real world stuff in between, you know, graduating with whatever their degree was and now becoming med students. Like, I've had a, one of my classmates in med school um, with me was a fully licensed pharmacist, still mm-hmm. working in the hospital where we rotate at. And then he would go to med school in the other building where we were. And all of a sudden, he's like, guys, I can't make it after round. I'm like, what do you, have, what do you mean you have to round? You're a first year. He goes, yeah, yeah, no, I got, I got work doing the ICU because he's a clinical pharmacist. <laughs> That's the level of competence for some of these damn learners. Right. Definitely. No, I mean, I've worked with learners recently that um, retired military that mm-hmm. were medics, were pilots, you know, people that are very qualified in decision-making and high-stress situations. More useful um, than your average intern. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> More useful than your average intern. Yes. Def- definitely. <laughs> right. And that's not a slight on being a first-year physician. Interns are first-year physicians. But no, it's, I, yeah, it's yeah. the idea that just because they are learners does not imply, does not necessitate that they are incapable of being useful to the team. Well, and, and these learners have proven themselves academically. They're in usually the top 10% of their class. And uh, 
they are driven, they work very hard, and are very competent in many ways. And I, I like I like that that kind of juxtaposition of people that have already had prior experience and then not not prior healthcare or other world experience. In general, I think it's important to realize that medical students or health professions learners are what we call a value add. I think that's kind of the popular statement, but but they they are and, and can be if, if if mindfully integrated a value add to our system. So. Um, they don't need to be shadowers. They don't need to be subjects of the educational experience. We need to include them <laughs> and let them add value. So there's there's other healthcare systems that talk about that, but that's kind of the popular word is their value add. Well, and I think uh, some of our patients um, don't understand that. They, they will tell us, well, I don't want a medical student. And my response is, no, yes, you really do want a medical student. Believe me, they can add to this this appointment so much, so much value. And it's, it's not just the documentation and the, and the pre-charting that they do and the research. It's adding to the decision-making. It's looking for different things that you train them to look for. And so they become an integral part of our healthcare team. So is that the, so. is that the mission then? Cause you, you said you're from a, a family of, te- we have to go back to that, by the way, you're from a family of teachers. That's cool. Um, so, okay. You're a physician who's from a family of teachers and it sounds like the thing that activates you is aside from the clinical care, obviously it's getting the game of these med students who affiliate with us up, like, uh, making that resource actually useful, uh, as opposed to just being uh, tr- so traditionally, a lot of medical students do something called shadowing, which sounds about as benign as the word would be. So a shadow basically just kind of hangs out in the back in the corner. They have their hands behind their backs, kind of like in this pseudo military pose, silent as a shadow would be <laughs> until, right. you know, until some standing angry attendant. Right. Yeah. Standing at attention. Right. And then the attendant <laughs> will snap some random comment like, Hey, med student, what's like the ligament that binds the who knows what to the God knows where. And then they sweat profusely, answer the question, you slap them a bit. And then like, that's the image of what a shadow would be. And the whole point is you don't need to be that. <laughs> Because right. of what Dr. Ebert's um, alluding to, it's they are useful. And it sounds like your shtick is making people remember that these people are useful and that they're people and you shouldn't slap the med student. They're smart people. Uh, they're yeah. smart people. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> smart. Honestly, they got to, they got I look, to med school. I, I talk to many of these students and I think, oh, they're so much smarter than me. <laughs> like Some of them talk about what they do and I'm like, holy smokes, I wouldn't be competitive against some, some of these students. I feel exactly the same. I'm like, I'm not sure if I'd get in anymore if I were to apply again. Like, yeah. they're they're very accomplished. Yeah, one one of my mentees is a damn neuroscientist. I'm like, come on, just what? <laughs> well, and and they do they do help in improving the patient experience. But let let's move on to improved pop, population health. I think this is an interesting idea. This this idea that we are trying to improve pop, public health and population health. I often tell my patients, at least in the musculoskeletal side, that my goal is to get them to the point where they don't need me anymore. And from a business standpoint, that's not a great business model, right? But from a, a health model, that's exactly right. Um, so when we're looking at inc- improving population health. You know, we we are in the business of making people well, 
which it seems a little bit counterintuitive, but that's really what we want to do. What does this look like in improved populations' health? I guess I'll talk about it from a, a clinical standpoint. We're looking at can we prevent the on the um, the onset of chronic illnesses? So can we look at maybe for example, behavioral risks across the uh, our patient population or physiologic markers across our patient population? And can we address those to prevent the onset of chronic illnesses like diabetes? So say we look at people's um, body mass index, which is a ratio of their, their height and weight. And we say we want to try to get the percentage of our patients with an elevated body mass index down so that we can prevent the onset of diabetes or um, other chronic disease states, then uh, that might be one of the outcomes that we, that we target with population health interventions. So essentially we are looking at our patients and from an osteopathic standpoint, we are looking at what illnesses are prevalent in the population we serve, um, essentially what is their environment, and how can we go about looking at this population health, and how, how do we go about decreasing chronic illness diagnoses by affecting these groups and their environment? So... It's, it's cool hearing you guys frame it that way. I'm trying to think about this. I'm trying to distinguish what makes this different from clinical medicine, like in the day-to-day -day act. And I mean, the moves at the end of the day are the same. It's the same biology that we're fundamentally dealing with, but it's a difference of scale, right? Like mm -hmm. if I focus on one patient at a time, I can do so much good and that's fine. But if I start zooming out and assessing at the level of that environment, yeah, I'm still looking for, you know, hypertension, BMI issues, obesity, et cetera, et cetera. But now I'm looking at it at a scale. I'm assuming the tools we would use would be different at scale. Like I don't counsel, I wouldn't counsel a community the same way I would in a one-on-one. -on -one. So what makes the public health mode different in its, um, in its operation? Yeah. Thanks for asking that question. Um, I think at the individual scale, we need to be paying attention to what we call social or structural determinants of health, um, and then also um, where a patient lives uh, and, and their culture, so things like that. And we might elicit those as histories at the individual level. What do you mean and by social structural determinants? So social and structural determinants might be, so social determinants might be like race, ethnicity, um, it might be uh, cultural background, uh, number of members in your family, um, uh, things like education level, um, income level, uh, the neighborhood you live in, whether it has sidewalks or, an, or um, like a walkable neighborhood or a place to exercise or a grocery store. So those are things that impact your ability as an individual to maybe the ease of making good choices that might lead to health or disease outcomes. Now, that that is an interesting perspective. I, I remember as a medical student, uh, I worked in an inner city clinic and uh, we were out in Philly. 
And there were plenty of corner stores, but they had all sorts of processed, highly processed foods and cigarettes and whatnot, nothing that was good. But we would talk to our patients about going and getting produce, for example. And their their response was, well, I ride the bus. How am I going to go home on the bus with enough produce for a week? I can't do it. And so I go to the, the local corner store that's got all the packaged foods because that's easy. That doesn't require processing. That doesn't require uh, uh, extra cooking and, and the skills associated with that. It seems like some of that population had even lost their skills in the kitchen because you know, they didn't have access to good pr- fresh food and they didn't have access to good kitchen uh, good kitchens for processing it. So it makes a lot of sense that we would want to look at these groups and and um, uh, potentially work on those environments. Um, what kind of resources do we have in the community to help with some of these things? I think the, the resources we have may be broad, and it depends on the zip code um, that the patient lives in. Um, so I think at the, at the level of our clinic, there, there's a website and I can't remember the name. I think it's like find help. It used to be, it used to be Aunt Bertha and now it's like findhelp.org. But like at a clinical level, I can, I can identify where a patient lives and look up a resource in their community. So I don't have these memorized. I can look it up based on the, on the individual patient. But I think from a population standpoint, to bring it back to that, that question earlier is as a clinical practice group or a group of physicians working together, if we identify patterns in the needs of our patients by zip code or by need, we can more strategically partner with community organizations to serve to serve that need. So I think that's where it goes from the individual care that is more patient-centered with keeping in mind these social determinants of health to when we start to get population-level data, we can intervene what we call upstream and say, you know, my patients that live in this zip code don't have a grocery store nearby. And so I want to partner with this organization that provides fresh produce for my patients so that I can write a prescription, for example, for them picking up fresh produce that that could help them either treat their chronic disease state or prevent the onset of a chronic disease. Um, and so it just becomes a more kind of upstream approach for so addressing some of the needs. So let's play with that then, because that sounds really fun, actually. Um, let's make a scenario. I got a bunch of patients in my panel. We find out that a bunch of them live on the same block, whichever block it happens to be. And uh, so a lot of the listeners here know that I uh, do the diet thing. Like my, like if I don't t- say spinach at least once in an episode, something's wrong. Like <laughs> it's, it's mentioned spinach, quote young, talk about either kettlebells or firearms. James covered that for me today. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Well, but, you covered it. You got them all with that one uh, uh, comment there. That's, there's that's a quota. Great. I, I got to hit my quota. But so and you got still in there too. There you go. In that neighborhood, you you find out. Okay, fine. Um, because of their specific environment, because of that block, I know for a fact that it is either physically or financially untenable for them to get uh, the produce that I want them to get. Right. So let's say I need you to consume like I don't know whatever units of spinach. Fine. Great. Uh, we come to the agreement that this neighborhood is the problem, not just the patients themselves. It's not a commitment thing. It's a, the, the resources are there. They're, they're in the food desert, right? 
Okay. So what's the next move? So, hey, Dr. Ebert, I got these patients. They're in a food desert. Here's their home address. What's the next step in that? So you said you mentioned you would go to community outreach. How would we approach them? How do we net, how do we communicate with them as a clinical group? What what does that look like? I mean, for an example that that we're doing now um, is our our medical director has contacted or or been uh, in collaboration with the Tarrant Area Food Bank. So, um, so we'll provide food for certain patients in need. Um, I think a next step would be actually doing a more community oriented primary care in that zip code or that location. So um, say with Tarrant Area Food Bank, we um, we establish the zip code needs food or there's transportation problems. We meet patients where they are. So either at their actual homes, like home it, visits. So you mean that physically, not metaphorically, like actually go where they are. Yeah, actually go where they are. So if that so is so say, dope. Yeah. So say there's not a food bank or a place to get produce where they live, we could still collaborate with a community organization, like a community center or a church or a school and have the food bank bring food. We bring telemedicine or community oriented primary care there and just kind of agree to meet up the things the patient needs, meet up where they are physically. Yeah, It's actually a new term for me. So community oriented primary care versus... Um, I guess what what is the community oriented add on to the term imply? What is what does that look like? Yeah, and I guess I'm I'm not going to be able to give a good textbook definition here. But I don't I, need textbook, think... yo. These are, these are <laughs> new terms. These are new terms for me. Yeah. So I'm learning from this. Just to be clear, yeah. Yeah. I don't know knowledge so we're I, using. So I'm I want to know. Yeah, I think I think the name describes in general what it's supposed to be that you. I, that you go out into the community where the patients are, whether that's to their home or making a new satellite clinic in an area that, that has a lot of need where you realize there's a lot of patients that need a certain type of service. So you physically do a clinic or a, even, even if it's like a, a temporary clinic, like a, mo- a mobile clinic. Um, I would so say for- I have the image of a bunch of us like in a, in like one of those, uh, those really nice van trailery things just, Take it around, yeah, park yeah. it in. No, I, was I mean, thinking... our university has a Peds mobile clinic, and that's what they do. They go exactly. to different neighborhoods, um, like once a month. A certain certain weeks in the month, they're in different neighborhoods that don't have a physical clinic, and so um, that's an example. Okay, because well, yeah, I've seen that thing parked in front of our like building a, a bunch of times. I'm like, what the hell is that giant ass blue van? Um, it's, it's an RV. It's an RV clinic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that would be what this is. So like. Okay, let's go back to that example of my uh, guys who don't live in an environment where there's access to food. Let's say they don't have access to the to the food banks. Great. Um, something, something, yada, yada. We can roll up clinically and do our work there because they don't have transportation issues even and, you know, and branch off. So it's, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, well, or and- for instance, like in the community, like we have a, we have a, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say actual, <laughs> actual like other entities. No, no, no. Or, like, please like, keep things generic for the sake of what one yeah, related. Okay. Like, so there, like, so there's, yeah, yeah. so there's a farm. So there's a, there's a, there's a um, nonprofit organization that is already. Um, their mission is to address uh, food deserts, and there actually there's farms on the Trinity Bank in areas of of our town where there's not, f- where there's not food, there's not grocery stores, and so the concept would be 
take the mobile clinic to the food source where patients can go get food or, or collaborate with that organization would be an example. It's like people need food. They're going to go where the food is. So if we were trying to improve their health care, we can go and be with them in the place where they're accessing what, what they feel like they need. We basically bring water to the desert, essentially. Yeah, yeah sort of. <laughs> well, and I know the uh, food bank also provides um, some additional classes in uh, kitchen and culinary skills to help because, you know, it's wonderful to give people access to food, but it doesn't help them if they don't know what to do with it. Right. You know, it's, it's just like giving them water. If they don't know how to actually get access to the water, once it's made available, it's not going to, you know, you, you give them water, but don't give them a cup and they're not going to be able to drink it. That so, actually reminds me of a terrifying sci-fi short story. <laughs> I, I just, uh, okay. Who's the author? I don't remember, man. The the thing was a goddamn nightmare. It was, <laughs> um, it was. Uh, I have no mouth and I must scream. Oh, uh, that you know. I think there was a fringe episode where people's mouths were being grown over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was made into like a really short web game or something like that. Yeah. But <laughs> how can we you don't have to go? We don't have, we don't have to go full into it. I'm just gonna say to to the people listening, check it out. It's a nightmare. You'll hate me for it. I apologize. I apologize for nothing. Actually, go read it. <laughs> it's too much of a non sequitur to bring up in too much detail right here. But just letting oh, you know, at some point we'll break it down. We knew it was coming. We knew it was coming. Now, all of this, all of these ideas are great, but one of the uh, one of the major issues with medicine is, is cost. And the third leg of this arm or this, of this aim is the uh, decreasing the per capita healthcare cost. Traditionally speaking, modern medicine has really been stuck in the old style factory type approach for assigning value. And what I mean by that is however many widgets you produce, AKA RVUs, or procedures you do determines your value as a clinician. And we've been doing this for years. Uh, we, the uh, system reimburses really well if you do procedures. It doesn't re reimburse nearly so well if you use your brain for anything that's not using your hands. And that's, that's not to say the proceduralists don't use their, their brains. They absolutely do. But the, the powers that be that count the pennies and pay the uh, salaries generally have not valued that. So how does this fit in this uh, decreasing the per capita healthcare costs? What does that look like? Uh, I think one of the, one of the big things that, that can be looked at is can we keep people out of higher acuity settings? So can we prevent hospitalizations and can we prevent, emergency department visits that are not necessary. <clears throat> so can we keep people well? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so like you talked about before, I mean, classically that, that, that can, that can be hard because, you know, if we keep everybody well, we, we don't have a job <laughs> that I'm actually okay with that. In that case, our job is to do the damn shepherd thing. Just the, the job well, transforms. <laughs> The shepherd thing. What's the shepherd thing? Now y'all got to teach me. Did I miss this? It's it's a it's a theme and some old stuff. Um, okay. Uh, okay. So you you have the idea that um, 
it, it gets almost Judeo-Christian in, in this verbiage because that's kind of the, the thing it's drawing from. It's, okay, so we have a patient panel, right? And our job is to keep the patient panel healthy in the most formal sense, right? Like uh, there's, there's the idea of curing disease versus finding health. And those two exist on a continuum. But when you have your patient panel, yeah, if the panel is that sick, your job is to fix the disease, right? If everybody has hypertension, I'm focused on hypertension. If there's like a new pathogen like COVID on the block, guess what my new job is? But on the other end of that, it's okay, so fine. What does the shepherd do if the flock is good, right? The shepherd doesn't yeah. just go away. No. The shepherd has to tend to the flock still. Uh, unfortunately, we... we we have um, difficulties seeing that shepherd role. And what I'm referring to is an experience I had as an active duty physician. I had a, a good friend who was a nurse. Um, she had come back to work at the clinic after retiring from uh, serving in the military. And she and I were chatting one afternoon. She says, Doc, you know what we used to do? We used to do this class for everyone who moved into the base. And for all of our military friends out there, PCS, they um, permanent change of station. Anyone who moved in with a new PCS got this class. The class was, how do I know when I should go to the doctor? Which seems intuitive, right? Teach people when to come into the clinic, and they'll come into the clinic when it's medically necessary. The class was so successful that the administration shut it down. Why did they shut it down? Because they weren't seeing enough patients in the clinic <laughs> to justify the staffing levels. Which, to me as a physician, that seems amazing. I love it. But for those who were counting costs and overhead and all that, they were like, no, we can't, we can't do this. So how do we avoid that kind of uh, narrow. response? Yeah, that narrow response right. from folks who are not clinical. So let's say the team actually wins that situation because that means that your resources just – earn the right to be reallotted to a new task, right? Mission accomplished. Right. We're not going to keep <laughs> doing the, the, the mission is accomplished. That's the point. That, that, that's the idea. But yeah, so D, when, when you mentioned the shepherd thing, it's the idea that um, when the disease part is sufficiently handled, we get to move on to the cultivating health aspect of the job. How do we perform? Right. Uh, you've heard me use that terminology with you, the medical overwatch function, not so much the active like, warfare of disease fighting. You know what I mean? Yeah. So more prevention and behavioral. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good place to be. I'd like to be, I'd like, oh, yeah, to, be that's most, what I want I'd like to be mostly there. And, and perhaps that's a bridge we should cross when it comes. Right. Right. Cause <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you with, with, cause we work in different clinics and different demographics with my athletes, like with, uh, with my warrior uh, community outside of uh, this this group, my job isn't disease prevention unless they like destroy their hamstring in the middle of a of a training evolution or something. My job is oh, what we were. It will happen. It get it happened this weekend. Um, <laughs> my job is to make sure they never need me, and like they know it. Like yeah, what's what's the situation? Well, Peretta said he doesn't want to work today, so don't mess up. And I'll be in the back like yeah, don't mess up today because <laughs> then I have to be a doctor. I'd rather be your training partner, so don't mess up. Yeah, right. Um, and they get that. And it took a lot of pre-education to get them there. They know how not to do it so that like when Joe Schmo guy ends up what pulling his Achilles, tearing his hamstring, this and the other thing, and it's their fault, I get to say, hey, you messed up because you knew what to do. But now now that you messed up, now I get to be your doctor 
this shouldn't have happened in the first place. We'll patch you up and get you back out of here. Well, and it's, you know, it's interesting. Public health has done such a great job of Im- improving duration of life because, you know, in the, in the turn of the century, the 1900s, the average lifespan was what, 50 years, something like that. And uh, much of that was due to infection and maternal fetal medicine uh, related mortality. And once we were able to save the babies and once we were able to get antibiotics and clean water, we were able to keep people alive for a long time. And now we're facing a different issue, and that is the chronic illness. And it seems to me that chronic illness is much more expensive than these acute things that kill you real quick. Because, you know, if, if you have a, a heart attack in the hospital and you're 65 and you, you get all sorts of specialists on board, and you do heroic medicine, but you still die. That 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 costs a, a significant amount of money. But then, if you live to ninety, and you spend your time in nursing homes and with lots of medications because you've got hypertension and you've got diabetes and you've got uh, arthritis and all of these acute uh, all these chronic illnesses, that's really where the expense uh, builds up. So I love the idea of taking patients from early on and saying, "Hey." Let's set up a program and steps to keep you from getting these chronic illnesses over uh, for both population health and for healthcare costs that intuitively it it seems to make a lot of sense. I just don't know exactly how we're going to convince other folks that from a dollars and cents standpoint it it is reasonable. But maybe that's something we have to work on for the- a long period of time. Okay. Yeah, that's I'm not real. Sure. That's kind. Of, that's kind of the ul- ul- Okay, so there's a small ulterior motive. I love that there's a camera, by the way. Like my hands move a lot when we talk, and <laughs> like, like my hands move a lot when we talk, guys. But it, there, it's your martial arts instructor just start like punching. <laughs> so, look. Obviously, we talk to our guests before they show up. Yeah, you know I mean, uh, so there, there's an overarching narrative in what we want to present to everybody. Uh, one of the reasons we wanted uh, Dr. Ebert to come on board was because we wanted to have this public health discussion, at least introduce the idea, because we've talked so many times about, how many times have we talked about food in the past like year, you and I, Dr. Aston? Every time we talk. Basically. Because we needed the, to bring that idea up to the limelight, like, why the heck is the osteopathic podcast talking about food? It's because that's how you nurture your goddamn fascia. Right. At the same yeah. time, um, we're, so... I want everybody who's listening to make note here. We're starting to shift our focus a little bit, right? I've only mentioned food so many times, but it's because there's other parts to taking care of a person, to finding health than just feeding them right or even moving right. The limitations to that come from your environment, which is why we want to begin this bridge. This isn't the only time we're going to have Dr. Ebert on board, hopefully. If we scared you off, I apologize. Um, At the same time, it's we want to mature this narrative of why public health matters in a very articulated context, right? So why does it matter? Mission, uh, reason one, because it's what? The four, the four aims, right? What were they again? So we have... I don't even put you on the spot. It's, I need to yeah, look at yeah. the four aims. Improved, <laughs> improved patient experience. I've got this right in front of me, so we can thank do you, this. Thank you. Improved patient experience, improved population health, decreased per capita healthcare costs. And number four, which we haven't talked about yet, but we will, is healthcare professional wellness. Right. Those are all worthy missions. In fact, hell, those all deserve their own like hour and a half slot 
as a talking point, you know what I mean? But um, it's hard to convey why this is so important because, and, and this is something I actually learned from from a video game standpoint. So once upon a time, I played a crap ton of World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. Like a lot, like it was a lot of World of Warcraft. And I played a healer in that game. So my job in that game was to prevent people Sur- from dying. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Look, our team needed... I wanted to roll a warlock, but just different story. Yeah, yeah. Point being, my job was to keep the team alive in a very formal sense. Now, there's two ways to play a healer in this context. You can either fix the damage that happened. Basically, a big badass monster chop like attacks you. You get hurt. Hey, priest guy, fix me up. Yeah. The other build, which is actually what I picked, was something called a prot build, a protection build, where instead of healing the damage that happened, your entire job was to make sure they never got hurt in the first place using magic and things that are video game-ish in that nature. And the cool the, Armor the thing that was so annoying. Like. Yeah. Um like you would make like magic shields around them so that even though they took massive damage, it broke the shield, not their face or whatever. Yeah. Um and there was always this active debate in the healer builds, like which one's superior, especially for high end rating stuff, when this really matters, you're like, you need to find the optimal build. And if you just looked at the stats, you would say the healer, like the actual heal damage will disappear because look at all the damage I'm healing. But when you actually went to the high level games, it was the prot builds that were selected out as superior because it didn't matter how much damage you healed. He never got hurt because of me. So exactly. what's, well, what sucked was on, on like the, the, on the spreadsheets, because we would do some damn mathematics to figure this crap out. You look like you did nothing the entire game. Like, what are you doing, man? Chilling. Are, are you sure? Yeah. What like, have you done this entire like raid? Everything. You're still alive, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, did you die? Like, it's Z Dog MD all over again. Just put on the Vader did you mask. Die? But did you die? No. You then I did my die, job. Then they Shut up. <laughs> Let me get my loot. But it doesn't look nearly as glamorous. Like, you look boring. You literally just stand there watching over everybody, making sure nobody's shields drop. And as long as nobody's shields drop, you look like you're doing nothing all damn game. But in the back of your head, you're actively watching so damn much because you're not worried about the guy who got hurt. You're worried about literally the whole damn team. But it looks like you did nothing. Yeah, that's that's why public the health. ER is that's why the ER is so uh, glamorous, and public health is really where it's at, where it's at in the background. Yeah, <laughs> ERs in my in my weird ass metaphor, by the way, would be like rogue builds or like druids who specked into being a cat, maybe a moonkin. My gamers will understand that. I apologize. Well, and I will tell you, the ER docs will will say, I wish we were doing more public health to prevent some of this stuff from needing to come in. Then get a goddamn <laughs> prod mage, or sorry, a priest. <laughs> so there is there is so much to be said for that. We really will we'll go into this in more depth in our next episode as well. Um, but uh, protecting the public by giving them the shielding that they need, the, the helping them work within their environment. Boy, that that can do a lot of good, both in healthcare costs and healthcare outcomes. And that's really what we should be about. And then the last aim, and Dr. Didia, I love how you you really emphasize quadruple aim uh, over triple aim. This this whole idea of healthcare professional wellness and burnout it's a thing and sometimes i get this uh, perception from the public that oh your doctors you're making 
you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, why are you, why are you worried about burnout? Right. You make all of this money, you live this charmed life when people see us as though that we're the docs on that show ER or, or any of the medical shows out there, Grey's Anatomy, House, any of those kinds of things. Don't sleep with your interns. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> Never. <laughs> I, the amount of people yeah. who watch Grey's Anatomy and just the entire premise that a damn show weirds me out. Like it's creepy to watch it at a skeevy level. I'm like, none of this is. Yeah, oh. this is not real. This is not, this is not real. In reality, physicians commit suicide at higher rates than any other profession in this country. And there are many reasons for that. One of those that Dr. Didi and I have talked about personally is the lost autonomy, lost um, ability to make decisions. And when, when you have um, folks in authority telling you how to practice medicine, it really is difficult. But just... Real quick, Dr. Didi, what does professional wellness look like to you in uh, uh, in a professional setting? I think with professional wellness, I think about two aspects. One is work-life balance, which I'm probably not going to get into here. But I think the other part um, that connects in with that primary care and public health alignment is the ability to um, address the problem that you diagnose. So as physicians, we tend to be the diagnosticians. But what happens when we diagnose a problem that we don't have that much control over? Um, it's, you know, I can diagnose diabetes and I know all the medications to use and I know the ideal um, behavioral targets. But then this, the stress comes in if I don't, also have the skill set to navigate change and partner with a patient or even more stressful if I realize that all the things that we could partner over, it's even more challenging because again, back to the food, they don't have, if they don't have access to the right food, then how can I partner? Or if, if they don't have safe housing or secure housing, um, and it's a mom, she's not, she's not going to be focused on her diabetes and what food she eats if she's worried about keeping shelter for her children and not u- losing utilities. So I think for me, wellness and burnout is having the resources or the skill set to address those things that I diagnose, <laughs> whether they be, <laughs> whether they be the diabetes or the, or the, the skill set for behavior change or the upstream factors. Um, to me, that that's that's where I see a lot of burnout come in in our primary care setting. It is definitely a frustrating thing to say. I know this is what you need, but uh, for example, uh, exercise. You need to be exercising, and well, I can't afford a gym. Or for the the older population, I don't have any access to silver sneakers where I live. There's no YMCA. There's no affordable access to equipment. Um, and so that that is a frustrating thing. And then to add to that, the demands that are placed on physicians, you need to see more patients, you need to see them faster, and their their health outcomes need to be improved, and you need to get your documentation done in the right amount of time, and it needs to be coded right. And all of these things add to when uh, to a point where the physician says, "Fine, I'm done." And honestly, 
it, it seems a little cliche to say this, but if you can't take care of yourself, you can't really take good care of your patients. If you're sick, it affects your decision-making. It affects your ability to concentrate and to work within a system. It It is all, uh, here we go, osteopathic. It's all interconnected, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, I, I should bring up, I've never actually heard wellness in our field brought up in that manner. Like, uh, I'm used to hearing the context, one, in, as in resident wellness, because I'm only two years out the gate, uh, it's always been a conversation about work hours, stress, mo- stress modulation, being able to develop the resilience to handle the sometimes honestly nightmarish things that we have to deal with. I haven't really heard it framed in terms of, I mean, I've heard it as autonomy, but I've never heard it as the ability to fix the thing that we recognize. It's, it makes it, it's a, it's a no brainer now that you say it out loud, but that that's actually really cool. It's yeah. That would rack my mind if I saw a problem that I couldn't, address and that might not be a human thing that might be a like that personality thing right like if you're a physician part of your training part of how you've been constructed is to be a problem solver and to be put in a position where you can see the problems and you have the expertise to recognize it at multiple levels of analysis and then be told or not be told be put in a situation where you have no means to address it it gets that 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 would eat that that would wreck me well, and, and that- I think we've seen that a lot with the with the pandemic that's come out in stories too, where there's just healthcare systems that I, mean, I think India has been the one recently where you know doctor the doctors know what to do, but if you run out of oxygen tanks, then yeah, if you're out of dexamethasone, you know you're out of zinc, you're out of out of vitamin C, whatever medication or uh, tool you have, then it's frustrating, and th- this can be so so many factors. It can be the system that they're in. It could be the environment they're in. It could be their financial situation or their housing situation. As we've mentioned, food deserts and all of those things contribute to it. So this is a huge topic. And Dr. Didi, thanks for coming onto the show. We are going to have you come back because you have developed a, a great program at our clinic. And we want to talk about how you've implemented a lot of these uh a, a lot of these uh, aims, all, well, all of these aims are integrally combined into the program that you've designed. We are excited to have you come back and talk about that. Um, I think we could have multiple episodes, really, if, if you want to. Um, thanks again for coming, and uh, thanks again for joining us on Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Join us again when Dr. Didi comes back and talks more about the quadruple aim. 